Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity we have to gather together to study your word and to understand what you would have us to learn. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 2, we're going to be looking at the day of Pentecost. Uh, remember chapter 1, we saw Jesus ascending into heaven. We saw the disciples deciding that they did not have enough of them. Seems how Jesus, Jesus chose 11, uh, 12. There should be, be 12 of them, and they chose Matthias. It just didn't happen to be the same one God chose, uh, which is quite interesting because a lot of times we do that to God. God, do you want this or that? And God says, no, I want, I want this other thing that you didn't even consider because uh, God had Paul in mind. And they didn't have Paul in mind at that time. Paul was the persecutor. Um, probably not quite at this point, but he's going to be the persecutor, and he is definitely not who they have in mind. Um, so we look in chapter 2, starting at verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all of them in, with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing of mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them clothed tongues like as unto fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And they were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised about, the multitude came together and were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man his own tongue wherein we were born? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and dwellers of Mesopotamia, and Judah, and Cappadocia, and Pontus, and Asia, and Pygia, and Pamphylia, in Egypt, and in parts of Libya, and Cyrene, and strangers of Rome, Jews, and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. They were all amazed and were in doubt, saying to one another, What means this? Others mocking said, These men are full of new wine. All right, we're going to stop there because I'm not sure how far we're going to go today. We see here Jesus had told the disciples to wait in Jerusalem. All right. They had been there. Jesus was crucified on Passover. Fifty days later is Pentecost. These are both Jewish holidays. All right? You have uh, Passover, you have first fruits, and then you have the long wait until Pentecost. Usually people would stay in Jerusalem to worship because Pentecost and Passover were the two days that all the Jews were to stay and be at the temple. So a lot, many times people spent the entire two months in the Jerusalem area when they would go down for Passover, unless they lived real close. But you got to think, these guys are traveling two and three weeks to get to Jerusalem sometimes. They start up in Galilee, and it would take a week to two and a half weeks to get there. So you did not go to Jerusalem, go back to Judea, and come back again between the, between the two holidays. It just made a lot more sense to stay and worship God for those two holidays. So Jesus had told the disciples, stay in Jerusalem until the time that I tell you. And this is going to be that time that he was telling them about. Pentecost. Pentecost, 50 days. And it says, when Pentecost had fully come, they were all in one accord in one place. This one accord is mentioned several times 
in the book of Acts, especially while they're in Jerusalem. All right? And what that literally means, they're of one mind, they're in unison. All right? Very important to understand, it does not mean they all thought exactly the same and acted exactly the same, but they were in unison in where they were going. They had a vision. And one of the, one of the places I read talk about it, they were kind of like a symphony. All kinds of different instruments, all playing different notes, sometimes playing totally different notes, but they all come together in a unison is what this word one accord means. And this is the way we need to look at each other in the church. Each, player, each person in the church brings a different gift, brings a different skill, brings a different way of thinking about things to the, to the party, but we're all in one accord, moving in one direction. And this is where they were at at this point. About 120 of them in this, in this upper room. And that's quite a few people. I don't know how big this house was, but that's a good-sized good size gathering room. And they were all there, and it says, and suddenly there was a sound of heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the house and they were, that they were all sitting in. This word for um, mighty is the idea of a violent, forcible sound. And this whole idea of uh, filled the house, it was filled completely. And the sound that they heard was described as the word they used for sound in the, in the Greek was the sound of a roaring ocean. This is not a quiet event. And it seems that people heard the noise. And I don't know what this meant. You know, if you've ever been near a train that comes rushing by, you kind of know what that, 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 that we're talking about. If you've never been out by the ocean during, during the roaring sea or, or a train rushing by, this is the type of noise that it is. It, it drew attention. It, it grabbed people's attention, and it filled the house. The Holy Spirit's coming was a, an extreme supernatural event that grabbed everybody's attention, including the people around them. All right, this was not a quiet event that God says, ah, oh, we'll just do this in secret. God doesn't do much in secret. It's a pretty amazing thing. When you look at what God does, he draws attention to himself, not to the individuals. If people are drawing attention to themselves, it is most likely not of God because God does not draw attention to the people. He draws attention to himself. And that's one of the things we're going to look at. It says, they, they heard them speak of the wondrous works of God in verse uh, 11. And it says, There appeared unto them clothing tongues likened to fire, and it sat on the top of each of them. Now, I wonder what this would have been like. You know, God shows, shows himself in a way that says, I am here. I've seen some pictures of the Pentecost with the fire, you know, fire flames sitting on top of their heads. Is it very much possible? Absolutely, it says it happened. Moses saw a burning bush that didn't get consumed. It's not a big deal for God to put a burning flame over everybody's head and saying, you are now engulfed in my spirit. His spirit oftentimes showed up in flame, in smoke. And so the children of Israel were led through the wilderness by a column of, of a pillar of flame and fire and by smoke and, uh, and light. And, uh, uh, so none of this is totally unheard of in the Bible. 
Was it figurative? Was it spiritual? Was it real? I don't know. All I know is they saw something that looked like flames. All right? What those flames were, I don't know. People have tried to say, well, they were all hallucinating. Well, 120 of them hallucinating the same thing would be a big deal. That would be a bigger miracle than the flames in the top of their head. All right? Um, but it sat on the, on the head, and they were filled with the Holy Ghost. And this word for filled means to be filled to the very top. It's pleroma. Not just filled, but overflowing. And it's a beautiful picture. When God fills us, he doesn't just stop and say, well, I think you need one gallon in your 10-gallon tank. I'm gonna, he's going to fill it to 10-gallon tank, and he's going to say, well, there's a little spout here. I'm going to fill that as well. Oh, you need some lines filled? We'll fill those lines. He doesn't stop until we are full. And this is the beautiful thing. When we know Jesus and we have him in our heart, we know he's there. There is not a question that God is in us when he's there because we are full. We are not half full. We're not three-quarters full. We're not you know, one-tenth full. He says, I'm going to fill you up, and I'm just going to work in getting you completely full. And I've had people, well, how can God fill everybody? I'm going, well, he's infinite. It, you know, he has just enough to fill every single person with no problem. But, you know, it really does go to show, when people ask that kind of a question, it, doesn't mean, it means they don't really know God. God is infinite. He is so much bigger than we are. He is in, you know, he can split himself up in every single person in this world and still be no less. Because infinity divided by anything still equals infinity. And God says, I'm going to give you all of me, and I'm still going to have all of me left. And it doesn't make much sense to us. God, how can I have all of you in me, and they can have all of you in them, and they can have all of you, and you still, have, you still aren't diminished at all? Because God says, I'm infinite. I'm so much more than you know, so much more than you understand. And this is the beauty about God. We will never fully understand God. The more we get to know about him, the more we don't know that we don't know anything about him. And that is what I'm learning. The older I get, the more I realize I don't know anything. When I was young and stupid, I thought I knew everything there was to know about God. And the more I study about him, the more I realize, I don't, God, I, I know a lot more than I did back then, and I still don't know anything. Because every time you think you know, he shows you something else. And then you, show, and you think you know that one, he'll show you something else. They were filled to the top with the Holy Spirit. God had told, Jesus had told them, I'm going, you're going to receive power. You're going to receive power. They had a taste of it on two occasions when Jesus sent them out witnessing. He breathed on them and they went out with power. Casting out demons, witnessing, speaking. I think it really happened, but this was the dramatic one. He's going to say, I'm really making a point to you. And they indwelt them and filled them to capacity all the way to the top. And this is going to change their lives. And I think God did it on purpose. Because you've got to think, for us as Christians, in our day and age, there's lots of other Christians. It's really not a big deal. I can, I can learn from other Christians. I can talk to other Christians. There's only the 120 or so of them in, in, in the upper room at this time. Jesus is gone. If they don't have something really big to remember, as if the uh, resurrection wasn't enough, all right? But this empowers them. 
Uh, the resurrection is big. We saw Jesus. He's alive. But 10 days earlier, they saw him ascend into heaven. He's no longer with them. They've lost that he's with us strength. And God does a tremendous thing saying, here I am indwelling you, and I am giving you the power. And I think at this time he also makes it clear that I am not taking it away. You know, this is the beautiful thing, and this is why when we look at this, eternal salvation is so important for us to really understand. God gives us eternal life. Eternal life starts the moment that we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Eternal life does not start when I die. It starts the day he comes and indwells my life, which means it will never disappear. The Holy Spirit fills me, and I have the confidence that I am filled. And people go, well, what about people who just go out and sin and sin and sin? Well, the people who think you can lose your salvation will say, well, they lost their salvation. I will say they never had it in the first place. They had the seed planted. It popped up in their life but never produced fruit. God has to produce fruit in the person who's saved. That is when we know that we are saved, is when we produce fruit. Hopefully other Christians. But getting our life changed is so important. Loving his word, loving us, loving him. And they, they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Speaking in tongues. This is something that is very hard. Baptists don't really like speaking in tongues, but the Bible talks about speaking in tongues. So we're going to teach on speaking in tongues. Did it disappear in the first century? No. God still uses it. It's still out there. Um, I know a pastor who is adamantly opposed to the gift of tongues, thought it was not for today. He was speaking in another country through an interpreter. In the middle of the message, the interpreter stopped speaking. And he asked why, and they go, I don't need to, you're speaking, you're speaking perfect finish. Even after that, the pastor did not believe in the gift of tongues. I have no idea how he could deny it when it had happened to him. Now, this is important because tongues in the Bible is just what they said. People heard their own language. Now, what was the gift? Did the speakers speak a different language, or did the people hear a different language? I don't care. <laughs> it doesn't matter to me. It really doesn't matter which way God did it. It's still a miracle. All right? It's still a miracle whether God changed what they said or what they heard doesn't matter. I tend to believe that they heard, because there's so many, name, there's so many different uh, nationalities just named. But it really doesn't matter how God does what he does. All right? It's what's important is that God did it. And he says he gave them the utterance of speaking in tongues. Now, we're not going to go into the deep gift of, the, gift of tongues and everything because that's a whole other topic. Okay. Uh, Just one question. So the, the speaking in tongues needs to be interpreted is different this Oh, this is very different. It, well, it was being interpreted by every hearer. Okay. The every hearer interpreted what was said. And I've actually heard in, in, in Pentecostal churches where somebody goes, there was no interpretation. Somebody was going, what was the problem? It was perfect, perfect Samoan or perfect, uh, perfect Danish or something. You know, the person was sitting there. It was for them. And I go, what are you talking about being interpreted? It was, you know, it was perfect. Oh, so. so they had, they technically could have given the interpretation because it was their language. Okay. 
could be. Could be. These people interpreted because they heard their language. They were interpreting. Now, that's not usually the way it's done. I mean, usually somebody will stand up, say something, and somebody else in the church should be given an interpretation for what has been said. Yeah, but if somebody does not interpret, then you have to question whether it was a valid, valid uh, thing. And then people will go, that person's just babbling. Well, I don't know. I've heard a lot of things that sound like babbling when I've been around other languages. Yeah, it makes no sense to me, especially if I hear an Asian language or an African language. Those make no sense to me. Most European languages I can make some sense out of. It's, it's close enough to what we speak for me to pick up words I know and, and that. But when I listen to some of the Asian languages around me or an African language that I've heard a couple times, I can't pick up a single word from them. They're totally outside of my scope. So when people are speaking in tongues, it may just sound like a bunch of babbling, but it should be a language that exists somewhere in this world. Now, there are other forms of, of tongues where you pray in tongues. Now, if you're praying in tongues, it doesn't have to be interpreted because you're only praying between you and God. And I think God can interpret his own, his own gift to you. I don't think he's going to have any problem. So there's no need of interpreting your, your prayer language. Now, when you're praying in tongues, do you know that you're speaking in a different language? I do. When I'm praying in tongues, I know that it's not English anymore. And I know that it's not German, which is the other language I speak. Uh, and I have no idea what language it is. Uh, and so you're aware you're aware of it. You're just not aware of what you're speaking because the Spirit is speaking through your, your, your voice. This is what was happening here. Now, did they speak and God changed what they heard? Did they speak and change what they spoke? Don't know. Uh, do we make a really big deal out of tongues in our church? No. If we had an opportunity and somebody was sitting out there that needed to hear the, the, the mercies and wondrous works of God in another language, I'm sure God would provide the message, or provide an interpreter, one or the other. Uh, so, but this is a big deal. This is Pentecost. All right, let's, get, let's come back in here. This is Pentecost. Jews from all around the world were in Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. This is why they give this long list the Jews weren't, and not all the Jews spoke only Hebrew. When they lived in other places, they spoke, they spoke the language of the place they lived. If they were good and good devoted ones, they'd gone to Hebrew school and they learned, they learned Hebrew. But I don't know if any of you have ever studied a language. If you don't use a language all the time, it, you do not remember that language. I can read and speak German, but it is very rusty after 30 years of not using it which is why whenever we get German visitors around here, I will say hello and talk to them for a couple minutes in German because I like the challenge of dredging up the German. These people are going to see a miracle of craziness to them. Uh, they come out and they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. Why? Because this is Pentecost. <laughs> It's one of the three feasts that they have to be there for. The church is born on this day where the Holy Spirit comes into the disciples. 
and this is something you, you can hear, and you hear people talk about this, and I agree with them. Until Acts 2, everything's Old Testament. All of the Gospels is Old Testament. There is no New Testament yet until Jesus dies, resurrects, and, 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 and the church is baptized. Even though Jesus is speaking it, he's the last of the Old Testament speakers because it's his blood that's going to create the, the covenant. All right? Now, it's a technicality. Don't get me wrong. You know, yes, we call it the New Testament, but the, new, the church age does not start until this point. All right? Jesus has been gone for 10 days. And the church starts, and the new covenant really kicks into, kicks into full force. Now, having said that also, the New Testament actually goes all the way back to before the creation of everything, because Jesus is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Okay? So, we, we got to be careful. Anytime we assign to God time, time parameters, he'll just blow our time parameters out of the water. But if you ever hear a pastor say that you know Jesus is the last of the Old Testament teachers, it's true. Because the New Testament really doesn't start until this point when the Holy Spirit comes and empowers the church. And we now have the Christian age, the church age start. So little minor thing, not a big deal. But as I said, technically it started before the foundation of the earth. Because as soon as Jesus said, I will die, in the predeterminate council of, of, with the Father and the Holy Spirit... As far as God was concerned, he was dead. He said he was going to do it. He is God. He said he was going to do it. Therefore, it was done. All right? And it's kind of like the old days when you said, this person is so trustworthy, they said they're going to do it. This job is going to get done. Unless they die, <laughs> this job is going to get done because they will make sure that it gets done. There's still some people like that. But as soon as they, if they say they're going to do it, you count on it. I mean, unless they're in the hospital or they're dead, they're going to get the job done. And that's how the father was with Jesus. You said you'd die? Done. And as far as all of humanity goes, God looked at them through the blood of Christ. Now, there's still consequences for sin. There's consequences for disobedience, just like... Uh, uh, Dr. Bruce Cannon said this morning, you know, there's consequences for disobedience. But God looks at us as perfect. And he's done this all through the generations. The only thing that's not forgivable is unbelief in the sacrifice of Jesus. When people stand before God at the white throne judgment, the only question he's going to ask you is, what did you do with my son? When we stand before him at the Bema seat, it's going to be, thank you for accepting my son. You're my child. The white throne is for all the guilty, and he's going to say, what did you do with my son? Here's every opportunity you had to accept my son and accept my forgiveness. And, when they, and then they'll go to hell knowing that they had rejected God and his offer of salvation. So here we are. A noise is going about, and verse 6 says, Now when all of this was noised about, a multitude came, and were confounded because every man heard them speak in his own language. Now this is an amazing thing. There's a loud noise. People gather. It's always amazed me how people gather at disasters. Now, the, the more the noise, the more the problem, the more the people gather. This noise gathered a crowd. What's going on up there? Then it says they marveled. They were confounded. 
because they all heard their own language. And that caused more people to gather. You know, what a beautiful thing. God created a crowd for them to preach to because God knows the inquisitiveness of human beings. You know, if there's a fire out there, a crowd gathers. If there's a big accident, a crowd gathers. There's a, there's a big crime, a, a crowd gathers. Now, if guns are firing, usually a crowd will disappear. <laughs> but, you know, but it's an amazing thing. You, you watch these news reports, and there's this big fire, and it's maybe even a deadly fire, and a whole crowd is gathering, and they, and they, don't, and they don't stay far away from the fire they, unless the police keep them back. They're going to be right up on top of the fire. What's going on? How's it happening? Uh, well, would you guys stay back so we can fight the fire? God makes a noise that draws a crowd. He makes it so loud that people are coming to investigate. Then they hear these guys speaking in different languages, and more people gather. And their answer is quite interesting. They say in verse 7, Behold, are not all these that speak Galileans? Now, we don't really comprehend what this means in our day and age. Basically, let's put it in plain day English. Aren't these a bunch of hicks? Galilee was the northernmost territory. When uh, Jesus was met, uh, I believe it was Philip, said, Philip brought his brother and he says, nothing good comes out of Galilee. Nothing comes out of good out comes out of Galilee. That's what the, kind of the reputation Galilee had. There's nothing but a bunch of uneducated hicks up there they're so far from the city that nobody, you know, you don't expect them to speak different languages. They, you know, they, 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 know the, they know the Galilean tongue and a little bit of Greek so they can do business. Other than that, they're uneducated. They're, they're just a bunch of hicks. Isn't it wonderful that God uses those who are the least likely to be successes? You know, and the funny thing is, as we get further on, Paul is going to get saved, or Saul is going to get saved, who's the, who becomes the Apostle Paul. Who does God send Paul to? Paul is a highly educated Jew, knows the, Greek, the Old Testament inside and out, and God sends Paul to the Gentiles, and sends Peter and the Galilean disciples to the Jews. Yeah, and you think about this, and I, I bring this out because it's so wonderful that God uses us in ways that are totally insignificant. I love to teach to college-educated people. Where does God put me? In chloride. We're not college in Kingman. Oh, yeah. You know, one college, one small college in Kingman, one community college which mostly is doing welding and nursing and those type of, type of education stuff. What does God do when he goes to the universities? Most of the times he brings somebody from some small town that can't, can't argue with them philosophically, can't argue with them educationally, and lets them love them to God. God oftentimes puts us in places that make no sense to us and uses us in ways that we're going, God, I don't understand how you could use me in the place that you're using me. Paul, super educated, you know, has his doctorate in, in Jewish theology, gets sent to the Gentiles. 
to be rejected by every Jew that he speaks to everywhere he goes. Galilean, Galilean hicks <laughs> sent to talk to, the, talk to the Jews. The beauty of this, and this is the people's, people's uh, thing. How are we hearing our language for this, from, the, from these hicks? These guys are, it wouldn't be too big, not too hard to understand. You're in Jerusalem, there's probably people who speak your language, who want to do business with you, that know your language. But these are guys from Galilee. Why would they speak all these languages? And I'm not going to reread all these different, different places. But these are big names. These are big names, big places, big cities. And they're saying we're all hearing our language. And it's, they heard them speak in their own and a, the wondrous works of God. Were these actual words and languages? Absolutely. These people were hearing them speak about the wonders of God. This is our job when we witness to people. We need to exalt God. Our life needs to exalt God. Our words need to exalt God and lift him up. This was the miracle of what was going on there. They're, they're hearing these wonderful things of God. They're hearing about Jesus living, dying, and resurrecting. And now they're hearing about the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon them and indwelling them. Probably hearing about the, res the, the uh, miracles of Jesus and the healings and everything. I, I can't imagine what was going on during this period of time. But they're hearing the works of God. This is why testimonies are so important in church. What has God done for us? Now, the problem, as Bruce said this morning, the problem with most testimonies are people go on and on and on and on and on about all the bad stuff they did and how great it was to get saved. And God gets about five minutes of their testimony time given to him. You know, as much as I like the unshackled, they do the same thing. 20 minutes of how bad they were and 10 or 15 minutes of God's wonderful change of their life. What should our testimony be? I was a miserable, terrible person. God saved me, and now this is what's been going on in my life. You know, and that's what it should be. You know, my testimony is really simple. I was a terrible kid at 10 years old. I was mean and nasty, and God saved me, and I've been changed ever since. Now, and most people look at me, well, you couldn't have been that bad. You didn't know me back then. Haven't you seen some 10-year-olds? Yeah, you did not know me back then. I was very mean, I was very angry, and I was very abusive. And God changed me. And he has done great things ever since. And lift up God. This should be our testimony. Lifting up God. What has God done in my life? He has opened my mouth. He's opened me to share. He's got me, given me a love for his word. He's given me this opportunity to work and serve him and minister to people and watch him work. I love watching people grow in Christ. It's the most fun thing you can have is watching people you're discipling learn. And anybody who teaches, anybody who disciples knows what that's the fun of that. You watch somebody who used to be doing something, and a year later, two years later, ten years later, twenty years later, they're totally a different person. Because God has changed them. And you had just a small part. Yes, it's God who did all the work, but you know, the teacher gets a part in that. The teacher is the one that gets to impart God's truth into them, help them down the path, and hopes that they outgrow them. My, growth, my hope is always that my kids outgrow me, 
and, it might, and the people in the church outgrow me. Maybe there'll come a day where all of you will say, you've got to get out of here, Pastor. We need somebody, we need somebody more important. We need somebody that teaches better. Yeah. <laughs> I hope that doesn't happen, but, you know. I don't see that But ultimately, that's the goal. But that is ultimately the goal, to teach people so far and have them pick up so much that they outstrip the teacher. What did Jesus tell the disciples? You will do greater things than me. Jesus did great things. But he says, when the Holy Spirit is in you, you're going to do great, greater things than I have done. They turned the world upside down. They turned the Roman Empire upside down through their teaching. And they walked past people and they got healed. Now when we look at later, you know, the, the shadow passes on people and they're healed. They take the handkerchiefs of Paul and people are getting healed. Jesus never did those things. But Jesus is not out there saying, I've got to be the number one. And ultimately, a good teacher is looking just that same way. I don't have to be more important than the people that have been taught. Matter of fact, I want them to be more important. I want them to grow more. I want them to, to do greater things. Now, you usually don't outstrip the teacher because the teacher hopefully is growing too. But it's not a problem if it happens because you start somebody on a higher plane and it's going to keep going. Three generations from now, I hope my family is growing really high and I can look down from heaven and say, those are my great-great-grandkids. Look, look what they're doing. God, you see them? Yeah, I, we put them on the right path. Look where they're at. Now, there are people who are saying, don't look at my kids. <laughs> don't look at my grandkids because they're going the wrong path. But you know, even in sin, each generation usually goes deeper into depravity, further into depravity than the previous one. It works the same way in Christianity. Each generation, will, if they keep following, will get greater and greater into God's love and mercy because they start understanding it at an earlier and earlier age. Because how much stuff do we have to unlearn in our life? You know, think about this. My kids grew up, yes, there's things they have to unlearn, obviously, but they grew up hearing the word of God from a very early age. My grandson is learning things from a very early age. My granddaughters are having to unlearn things because they came in at a much later age than, than them. But my actual grandson, born in our family, is going to start with layer upon layer. And I, I already told you guys, when I was holding him as a baby, I'm singing, singing Christian songs to him and telling him he's going to be you know, a strong Christian one day. That lays the foundation where we have to unlearn things when we get saved later. Our kids don't have to unlearn as much. And then the next generation doesn't have to unlearn as much. And it keeps going. As long as they follow God, they get to go further and further and deeper and deeper into God. And there are families that have had six, seven, eight, nine generations of pastors and teachers and, and followers of God. And they are powerful people because of this very routine. And there are people that have had generations of sin. And, you know, they get to where their, their parents look like good people compared to them. And they were bad in their day. And so we see here, they're amazed. And they're kind of walking, and can you, can you picture, you're there. 
And the question is, what is going on here? What, me what means all this? All the, these Galileans, these hicks, are speaking different languages. We're all hearing our language. And I have always been amazed at the mock. These guys are drunk. Um, I don't know how many drunks start speaking other languages. Now maybe there are people that have been in bars. They, now they may babble. They may babble and become incoherent. But I don't think that very many of them start speaking other languages that are coherent and understandable. But that was their, you know, that was their thing. Oh, they're just babbling. The same thing we would hear people say in our day when people speak in tongues, they're just babbling. You know, uh, and they, they were saying they're drunk. There always has been something that has kind of bugged me, like, wow, that's, but you know, when you really talk to the world, they come up with some of the stupidest, most insane excuses for God's work. You know, saying, I'm drunk, you know, saying they're drunk is probably just as easy as any other answer. Yeah, they're just so drunk, they're babbling. Don't care that you understand what they're saying, and you understand what they're saying, but they're just drunk. They're just drunk and babbling. But you know, when you're not willing to give God credit, you'll believe almost anything. The world, because they don't want to believe in the creation of God for mankind, believes that we started from nothing. I just love that. All of the world started from nothing. It just popped into existence, and then life just somehow popped into existence from nothing when we know that it doesn't pop into from nothing, and then it got more and more organized when we know that nothing just happens to get more and more organized. And yet, the world will believe foolishness rather than believing what God said. Yeah. But, yeah. And this is the people can't be of God. They must just be drunk. They're just babbling. You know, I know you guys think you're hearing your languages, but uh, you, you must be drunk too. You, you, something wrong with your hearing. They have a belief in God. But they still wouldn't believe that this was a God. That was the problem with Jesus. Yeah. Many of the devout upper echelon Christian, or Jews wouldn't believe that he was God. Didn't, you know, the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees and scribes at one point, and more than one time said, he's doing this by the power of Beelzebub or the Satan. Because he didn't want to recognize what he was doing because it was so different from what they expected. And this is what happens when we don't do things the way that it's expected or God doesn't do things the way that it's expected. We have a choice to obey him and serve him or try to figure out how, it, how it's happening by nature. This is what I said at the end of the movie the, on Friday. You know, the car wouldn't start for the pastor and the evangelist. That irritated the pastor. The evangelist had no problem. It's like, okay, it's not really what I wanted. I wanted to go on a trip, but God is good. The pastor is all upset. But because he is still in town, he gets to minister to people who need him to minister to them. If he had been gone, he would not have ministered to them. So God put him in the right place at the right time, even though it's not what he wanted. And then at the end of the movie, his car finally starts, which gets him put in just the right place to minister to the dying man hit by the car. 
How many times has God done this kind of stuff in our lives? Maybe not that dramatic. But we didn't get to do what we wanted to do when we just happened to be where we needed to be to minister to somebody. Or we ended up someplace that we didn't expect to be and we ministered to somebody. I've had this happen to me over and over again in my lifetime. Go with my wife someplace that I really didn't want to go to and end up ministering to somebody and I wouldn't have been there if she hadn't asked me and bugged me about taking her someplace. You know, it happens. Or, okay, God, I'm going to do this. I really don't know why I'm doing this. And right there, somebody needs to be ministered to. You know, say something that doesn't make any sense at all. And it just, the person's face lights up. Because that's what they needed to hear. We don't know what it is that God's going to put us into, but his way is correct. And he has got a plan. Even when it looks like there's no plan, he's got a plan. And we look at it from the wrong side, and there it, is, it looks ugly, it looks terrible, and I don't understand why, God, you're putting me through this pain and this trouble and these trials, and God says, just wait. When we see it in its completed form, we'll understand that we were exactly where he wanted us to be, doing exactly what we needed to be doing. Being joyful in the hard times where people saw us and said, I don't know, why, I can't understand how that person's staying joyful. That's miserable. I sure wouldn't be joyful. And when they find out it's real, they decide maybe I want it. We don't know what God is doing in our life. Our job is accept it and know that God has good planned. And this is the beautiful thing, and this is why you'll find me almost always saying when things seem to be going wrong, God's got a plan. God is always good, all the time, always. When it seems like he's trying to hurt us, he is good. Job definitely did not feel good when he had everything taken away from him. And then he had his wonderful friends telling him what a bad person he was to lose everything. I don't know how Joseph stayed as faithful to God for, for 20 years as a slave and then as a prisoner. Yet what was the very thing he told his brothers? Maybe, maybe by that time he'd really had time to think about it. He goes, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. What Satan means for evil in our life, God has planned for good. How that is going to work out, don't know. We may have to wait 20 years in slavery and prison before we see how it works out. Most of us aren't that patient. Job was patient, but he had a hard time. You know, when he's got his friends telling him how bad he is and how he deserves what he is and quit telling him how good he is because he has some secret sin that he's not willing to confess, he had a hard time. Joseph stays so faithful. Joseph's a quite a character. He stays faithful to God when everything seems to be going wrong. Nowhere in the scripture does it say that he ever complained or doubted. Now, I'm pretty sure he did. Nobody's going to be perfect, but... Nowhere in scripture does it say he ever complained or doubted. Because if he did, he had plenty of opportunities to, to rebel. Daniel, same, same way. Just the two men in the Bible that had no negative said about them. What a beautiful testimony they had. That they followed God in spite of bad things.
Peter stands up. Verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, You men of Judea, and you, you dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken unto my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, seeing that it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which is spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon the all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my maid, handmaids I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire, vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the great and notable day of the Lord come, and it shall come to pass that whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So we're going to stop there. Peter is very bold. He has denied Jesus three times to people who couldn't hurt him. I don't know if you've ever really noticed, and I've mentioned this, but when Peter denied Jesus, a girl, a young girl, and a lass, they kept getting younger as it goes down the storyline. You know, and he's denying Jesus. Now he's standing in front of a great crowd and pre pre presenting a message. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is filling his mouth. And he says, these guys aren't drunk like you suppose. He doesn't even chastise them for being stupid. Okay. Uh, because I probably would have said, what do you, you think these guys are drunk? You're hearing your own, you're hearing your own languages. He goes, if they're not drunk, it's only nine in the morning. Now we know the people who are really drunkards will get drunk at nine o'clock in the morning, but the average person, even if they are drunk, is not drunk at nine o'clock in the morning. Now there are people who are drunk 24 seven, 365 days a year. But Peter's coming up and saying, uh, guys, uh, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. These guys aren't drunk. And he goes, but this is that which the prophet Joel spoke of. And this is quite interesting. Here is an uneducated individual standing up to preach a message. He has not gone to rabbinical training. He has not, he's probably gone to Hebrew school for up until about 12 years old. And he's quoting the prophet Joel. Now, we laugh about that, but I'm going to tell you right now, the, during the Hebrew school, and even during most rabbinical training, they studied Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They did not study the prophets, usually. They were not all that great. And yes, they were word of God. They, 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 they believed that it was God's word, but it's not where they went to to study. Right? It's kind of like Christians. Where most Christians study? The Gospels. You know, and, if we're, and after the Gospels, we'll get into the, we'll get into the writings of Paul. You know, that's kind of the way the average Jew was. We're studying the, old, the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And if we're really adventurous, we'll get into the prophets. We'll get into Proverbs. We'll get into Psalms. And then maybe we'll get into the prophets. So where does Peter take them right to? Joel. And it's kind of interesting that he does not even say that he's in the book of Joel. 
Paul does this a lot. They, they all do this. They all just say, it is written. Or the prophet said. They were expected to know what was being quoted. And he's quoting something that is not going to be top of the mind to most of these people. It's kind of like when people go, what do, what, what do, how do I give the gospel if somebody doesn't believe the word of God? Give them the word of God. But, that, but they don't believe it. It does not matter that they don't believe it. The example we're given all through scripture is they quote the word of God. doesn't matter whether it was believed or not believed. The only thing that has any power is the gospel message, the word of God. So if we're going to tell somebody that they're a lost sinner, then we need to quote the Bible. For all of sin and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And when people, people, to, people have told me over the years, well, I don't believe the Bible. Well, you know what? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, I told you I don't believe the Bible. Whosoever confesses the name of the Lord shall be saved. Why do we do that? Because God tells us in Isaiah that his word will not return void. His word is what has power. Not my words, not anything else that I can say. His word has power. And so we give his word. Why do I go verse by verse through the Bible? Because his word is what's important. Then we expound upon it to help understand what is being said, but it's his word that has the power. Why do we memorize verses every month? And I know most people aren't memorizing them, but you know, why are we doing it? Because we want his word to get deep into people's hearts. Because there is coming a day when we will not have Bibles. It's coming. We've watched what happened in, in Russia. We have watched what happened in Cuba. We watched what happens, happened in China. All those countries had freedom of religion. The Bible's in their language. And just as it's happening in America, the freedom of religion was taken away. Do not speak outside your four walls. You can believe whatever you want inside your four walls, but do not take your religion outside your four walls. And then, well, you need to be careful what you're saying inside your four walls. If we allow them to silence us outside the walls, we will be silent. The next step is for them to silence us inside the wall. And then they take away the Bible and call it propaganda and foolishness and, and trying to destroy the, destroy the state. Our country right now is in the throes of communist revolution. They start causing havoc and panic. Then they take away the history of the country and then they take away religion. We are in all three of those steps right now. Our world, our country is going to fall without a revival from God. And probably very soon. Russia fell very quick. China fell very quick. Once all of these things happen, the only thing that will prevail is God's word. And we need his word in our heart so that when we lose our Bible, we have his word in our heart. Because that's all we're going to have. You know, we'll have scraps of Bibles. Bibles will be passed around. The book has never been destroyed. But places like China, they're happy to have three or four pages of the Bible. You get a Bible to the Christians in China or in Russia before it opened up. The first thing they did was tear it up. Not rip it up, but tear each page out nice and neatly. And everybody got a handful of pages. Because that's how valuable they found the scriptures. 
And it's sad to me in America how so few people take and value his word. You know, almost every person in, this, in America has a Bible in their house. Most of them are gathering dust and have never been opened. You know, and it's sad. They've got the words of life in their house. And when they come to take them, they're not going, oh, here you can have it. I've never opened it anyway. It's been said that the Bible is the, the greatest best seller that nobody reads. Every year it outsells every other book on the market. And yet you go and talk to people, and so many of them, even in Christian churches, have never read the Bible. They may have heard the pastor speak, they may have heard their Sunday school teacher, they've read bits and pieces when they're being taught from the pulpit, and many pulpits don't even teach the word. They read a verse and then talk about whatever, and it has nothing to do with what they read, have nothing to do with what, you know, what, of God, but they heard one verse. <laughs> you know, and this is important, that we understand his word, that we love his word, that we are filled by his word, because there's coming a day when we're not going to have his word available to us or easily to us. Why is it important to memorize scripture? Because they can't take that away. Richard Warmbrandt in Romanian prison quoted the scriptures that he, that he had. Watchman Nee in China quoted his scriptures that he had. Over and over, these people that have been in foreign countries with no Bible would quote what scripture they knew over and over again because that's all they had. How much of the Bible is in our heart? How much of the Bible can we be able to give out to other people? There's a lot of people that couldn't even tell you what most of the books are about, much less quote. Now, I probably couldn't quote all of Genesis, but I could go through the story on the timeline in Genesis and give you a lot of the stories, and I could quote lots of verses out of those stories. I could give you the book of Jed Exodus. I have a little more trouble with Leviticus, but I can give you most of his sacrifices and, and the tabernacle. Numbers, forget numbers. <laughs> uh, there's the stories in it. I know some stories, but, you know, and I know what happens in numbers. Deuteronomy, the retelling, you know, each of the books, I could give you an overview of those books and give you verses out of each of the books. Do we know our Bible well enough to be able to help people grow? if that Bible was lost. It's pretty important. And I'm telling us, I think we're at the end days. It's, it is not long before the church in America is going to be persecuted. We need to get ready. Those of us who believe that this is God's word, and people know that we believe it's his word, we're going to be under attack. You know, the statement, statement that's given over and over again, if you were to be put on trial for no, and accused of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to prove that you're a Christian? Well, I hope so, because I've got, I've got six years worth of testimony on, on, on the Internet. Okay? I've got years of people knowing that I'm a Christian and I don't do the things that they do because I'm a Christian. What is this? Will we say, people look at it and say, what, what does this mean? Who is this that out there? Very important for us to live a life that people say they're strange, they're weird, they're a Christian. And it's going to come a time when, because we are strange, weird Christians, we're going to be persecuted. 
going to jail, being punished, being beat, being suffering. It's not unusual, even in this world, for Christians to suffer. Even today, in our day and age, millions of Christians are killed every year. People go, well, I never hear about it. You're right, you never hear about it from those Muslim, Muslim communist countries about all the millions of Christians that get killed. People, people make fun of Christians in America because we say we're persecuted. They go, well, you guys don't even know what persecution is. And you know, we don't, but we are being persecuted. Our beliefs are being sub subjected to other beliefs, and when we say anything against those, we are really put down. And as, we, as things get worse and worse, we will be put down physically as well as verbally. We need to get ready. We are facing dark times without a revival. Would I like to see a revival? I've already shared with you. I hope we have a revival. I'm not pinning a lot of hopes on a revival. I'm praying for a revival. I'm hoping that for a revival. I want to see a revival start in this country. But if it doesn't, we need to be ready. Jesus is coming. But I think we're going to suffer a lot before he comes. It may be wonderful. Okay, God, I'm here. Take me. Don't, don't let me suffer. But that is not usually what happens. Noah suffered. Noah and his family built a big boat. You know darn well that they're the laughing stock of everybody around them. You know, for 120 years, they're building a boat. Noah, you see talking about this craziness of water falling from the sky and flooding, flooding the earth, and you're building that great big, what did you call it, a boat? What's a boat? Uh, what's rain? What's a boat? You're a net. You're wasting all of your money. You're wasting time. You're wasting, you're wasting beautiful field here, putting a big boat. Joseph sent into captivity. As far as his brothers are concerned, he's dead, gone, long gone. Dad's a little sad, but our, our problem brother's gone. Wish dad would get over it, but he's gone. Finally, find that he is their salvation. Over and over again, people have stood for God and been criticized. Elijah was a bald man. How do we know? Because the kids made fun of him for being bald. And they had just a little problem. God, God didn't like his man being, being, being criticized, and they were attacked by a bear. Uh, little, little things that God does to defend us, but by the same token, how many people don't get delivered? We read about... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego delivered. We look at Joseph being delivered. We look at uh, Daniel being delivered. We look at Isaiah being sawn in half. We look at John the Baptist being beheaded. All the disciples except for John had horrible deaths. Thomas, Thomas had a nice easy death. They, they stuck him with, with lances as they rode around him. One of them was drawn in quarter. They tied him to four animals and, and, and tore, tore him into four pieces. And they did. They, they went out praising God. Stephen is stoned and he says, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. When, if we have to pay with our life, we'll see Jesus. 
probably standing, most likely standing. I really do believe that if we pay the martyr's death, we're going to see him standing. This is my child honoring me. The Coptic Christians who died a decade ago by being beheaded, singing praises to God, probably saw Jesus in that moment before they were beheaded. What a beautiful thing that will be to know that I am serving God, and at the very least, when we cross into him, it's well done, good and faithful servant. The words that all of us as Christians want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And I don't know if there's an alternative. I hope he's never says to anybody, well, you got in by the skin of your teeth, but you're here. Hopefully everybody that walks into heaven here is well done. But you know one thing for sure? I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. I do not want to hear him say, well, all right, you're in. Uh, Honestly, though, that is better than not the alternative. But I really, truly want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. I want to serve God for all that I have and build my life around him and bring others to Christ. Bring others to Christ. Bring others to discipleship so that they can follow God in a strong way. That is my goal. That is my desire. And with... God has been able to use me to teach and watch people grow. And I take great pleasure in people growing and starting to share share gospel and, and being able to stand up for God. And who knows how many people are hearing on the internet that are getting saved. We don't know until we get to heaven, unless some of them ever write us. Uh, but you know, the whole purpose is present the gospel. Present the gospel. People, people all the time will ask me, well, how do you share to a, to a Muslim? You're a sinner. You deserve hell. Jesus died for your sins. Accept him. How do I, how do I minister to a Jehovah's Witness? You're a sinner. You deserve, you deserve hell. Jesus died for your sins. Accept him. Now, it doesn't matter who it is. The answer is the same way. Where they go, but you don't know how to answer their, their arguments. It does not matter that I don't know how to answer their arguments. The gospel is the gospel. I can never argue somebody into Christianity. Because if I can argue them into Christianity, somebody can come along and argue them out of Christianity. I need to present them to Jesus, and then Jesus indwells them. And when Jesus indwells them, nobody's arguing you out of Christianity when Jesus indwells you. Because when you know that he's in you, and he's washed away your sins, and you are free, you know you're free, and you're not, you're not going to be argued out of your experience. This is why people go, well, how do you know you're saved? Well, when you know you're saved, you know you're saved. There's not a question in my mind that I got saved when I got filled by the Holy Spirit, and, and God changed who I am from the inside out. There's not a question. You know, even before, when I was so, too young to really fully understand it, I knew that I was changed. And this is the important thing. When you are saved, you know it. And people go, well, I'm not sure that I'm saved. Well, actually, I would tell them, then you're probably not. If you don't have a point in time that you can look at and say, I got saved, and God is changing me, then you're probably not saved. And people go, well, I said a prayer when I was young, but I really don't feel like I got saved. I didn't get, I didn't feel, I didn't, I didn't get, you know, moving with God until 40 years later probably got saved the 40 years later. 
not the time when you said that prayer, it didn't mean anything. Now, I can't say that for sure, but when you're saved, you know you're saved. There's, does that mean you can't backslide and forget the experience and, and, and see it? You can backslide. But ultimately, you still have that ache in your heart that says, I'm not living the way I should be living. I'm not living like the king, king's kid. The prodigal son knew that he was not living at the status that he was supposed to be living at. He goes, my father's servants are treated better than I'm being treated. I'm going back to be a servant. And the father says, no, you're not. You're still my son. This is us. Even if we fall away, if we are his, there's always that nagging at our heart. I am not living the way I'm supposed to live. I am not following God the way I'm supposed to follow. I'm his child. I should be not be here. If you don't have that nagging, then you're not his. Plain and simple. Because even when I walked away from God for those years, I still knew that he was in charge. I knew I was his child. I wasn't reading my Bible. I wasn't going to church. And I could never have proved it to anybody that I was his child. But I knew that I was not doing the right things. I knew. It wasn't even a question in my mind that I wasn't. Because I am his child. And if you're his child, you know that you're not doing right. Yeah. And you know that you're, not, that you're living beneath your standard. And this is why people will say, well, I just don't live right. Well, then either you're not his or you better get right with God. One or the other. But you know, if you're not living right, you do have to take in consideration of, am I his child? Because Jesus said, many in that day will say, Lord, Lord, didn't I? You know, many of them will have the, the, the seed that sprouted up and then died. Which are the ones that are saved out of that parable? Four seeds. The only ones that are saved are the ones that sprouted up, connected to the vine, and produced fruit. If we are not connected to Jesus and producing fruit, we're not saved. And that fruit should be leading others to Christ, but it could also be just learning to grow with him, learning to be more like him. Am I becoming more like Christ with every passing day, hour, minute? Now, we really don't recognize it until we start looking back over years. But am I becoming more like Christ? Am I looking at his word to be fulfilled? Am I looking at where I'm at with him and looking for him to change me? This is the beauty that we have when we're in him. When we're in him, we're connected into him and we're alive. We know it. If you're not alive, you pretty much know that too. It really isn't that hard to know that you're not alive. You're sitting in a strong church and everybody's excited about God and you're like, well, I wonder what's going on here. You know, there are a lot of tears in the average church. There's tears in good churches. Now, if you don't know what I'm speaking of, the parable of the weed and the tares where Jesus said, gave the parable of the farmer that planted, had tares planted and tares and wheat look identical until they produce fruit. So you can't, well, not technically they're different, but they're so close you can't tell. There are people in every church that aren't saved. And you would look at them and say, wow, they sure look good. They say the right things. They come to all the services. They sing songs. They usually are happy or looking happy. But they know deep inside that they're not. Deep inside of me, I know that I'm filled with the joy of God. No matter what's going on. 
no matter where I am or how far from God I might be, deep in my heart there's the joy that he has placed there because he does not get kicked out of my life. I may be able to shove him in a corner someplace, shove him in a closet and try to hide him, but he is not ever pushed out. And we don't really get him in a corner. We just think we do because he's given us a little bit of space to allow us to learn. Our free will is so important. This is what people look at. Well, if God is so strong and all-powerful, how come bad things happen? Because God gives us the free will to choose or not to choose. And that's the sad thing. And he's wanting us to do what's right. But our free will affects our life. The sad thing is it affect other, affects others' lives. But God still has a plan even then. And this is the hard thing for us to understand, how God can let bad things happen and good things come out of it. My bad, my bad sin hurts somebody else and God uses that for good in both of our lives. And it's hard to even picture. But ultimately, God has good in store for his children because he's going to say, I've got it. And nothing surprises him. This is the hard thing to understand. When bad things seem to happen, it didn't surprise God. He knew what was going to happen. He knew what I was going to choose. He knew what somebody else was going to choose. When Johnny uh, Erickson dove off that, off that raft into the shallow water and broke her neck, it did not surprise God. He knew that it was going to happen. When people have cut their hands off in, in accidents, he knew that it was going to happen. When people have gotten cancer and, and gotten really sick and, and died, he knew that it was going to happen. It did not surprise him. That was hard for us to understand. But ultimately in Psalms, God says, precious in his eyes are the death of his saints. The very worst thing that we think can happen to us is we die. And God says, what's so bad about that? You're spending time with me. I get you back in my presence. God says, if you die, it's, it's great. You're with me. You know, we have to understand that God has a plan. That he says, I look at it totally different than you do. He has a plan that is totally opposite of what we think. You know, and you know, we think things are good, and then we find out they turned out bad. We think things are bad, and we find out they turn out good. We have such limited understanding. And I'll end, end with this. I didn't get into talking about this, so we're going to have to come back to the Joel being quoted. Uh, it's an amazing thing. There's a, the old Chinese story that this person's telling about their life and then going, you know, woke up this morning and there wasn't, the chickens didn't lay any eggs, we didn't have any breakfast, and the person says, oh, that's terrible. Oh, but this person came by and they brought brought a bunch of cereal and we had some breakfast. Oh, that was really good. Yeah, but then the bad guys, came, the, the thieves came along and robbed us of our, you know, of our, of our food. Oh, that was terrible. Oh, but then, you know, our limited perspective is everything we think is good oftentimes is not good from God's perspective. And the things that we think are bad usually are good by God's perspective. And we have to quit looking at things from a human perspective because we've all done it. Uh, this was the best thing that ever happened to me. I just won a million dollars as the tax collectors come along and take two-thirds of it. And then 
what's left, the, you know, all your friends come out of the woodwork that you didn't know you had and all the family can help you spend the rest of it until you have nothing left. And you go, wow, that really wasn't that good a gift. My life is ruined. You know, we need to be careful about how we look at things because God has a different plan. And we need to be looking at it from his perspective, the heavenly perspective. Paul said, you know, these light afflictions are nothing compared to the, the, the gift of eternity. We need to keep our eyes on eternity. Whatever we go through on this life is nothing. The bad we go through is nothing in comparison to eternity. And the good rewards that we have on this world are still nothing compared to eternity. God, you made me a trillionaire. I'm all happy. I've got everything I want. I'm able to, do the, I'm able to give all this money to the, to, the, to the... And I'm saying, stay good. You know, I'm giving the missionaries and all these things are going on because of all the money you're giving me. And God says, just wait till you get to heaven. You think, that, you think that's great? Just wait till you see what I've got in store for you in heaven. Nothing. And I, and I can go way off to the extreme. Nothing, no matter how good it is in this earth, is going to be anything compared to heaven. Nothing bad, nothing good, when it's compared to heaven, is worth anything. We need to keep it in perspective. God, you're blessing me greatly. Thank you. I'll use it for the kingdom. God, I'm going through all kinds of trials. I'm going to use it for the kingdom. Because it's just a moment in time. A moment in time and it's over. Amazing thing, the older I get, the more I look at time and go, time is so short. This year seems like it just started and it's already half over. This decade seems like it just started and it's already over. I remember Y2K 20 years ago. And it seems like it was just, a, you know, yes, it seems a little further away, but it doesn't seem that far away. And it's been 20 years. I remember writing programs to help stop the problems of Y2K. You know, and that's 20 years away now. We will be at the end of our life. If Jesus doesn't come, we will be at the end of our life. Even if we live to be 200 years old, we'll be at the end of our life before we know it. And we're going, wow, how did it get here so fast? And then we stand before God. And we stand in eternity with no end and no beginning, even though we had one. But we stand before him with no time and go, what a wonderful place to be. We need to keep everything in perspective to understand there's nothing that's important outside of heaven. Heaven is eternal. This life is temporal. No matter how good or bad it seems, it's temporary. Lord, we just ask you to bless this evening. We ask you to go with us. Lord, always help us to keep our mind and focused on eternity and heaven and the blessings that you have for all of eternity. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23 we are told, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, 
But God commended his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10, 9 through 8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of, of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431.